Everyone, hi, hello, welcome to another episode of Allison Rosen is your new best friend. I am sitting here with return guest and someone that I always love talking with, Kelly Carlin. She's a writer, author of The Carlin Home Companion, a performer, podcaster, radio host, Buddhist practitioner for over 20 years. She's a master's in Jungian psychology, daughter of George Carlin. Happens to be. Happens to be. And uh, has a new project Mm -hmm. called Women on the Verge Coaching. Yeah. Did I get that right? Yeah. Which we're going to talk about. Hello. Welcome. It's so nice to see you. It's good to see you too. To see all of you. (laughs) Both of you. That's right. I uh, have been joking that I'm two people right now because I'm extremely pregnant. When is it happening? February 25th. So I still have some time. You do. Yeah. It's the fun part. (laughs) You know what they always say about the the end of pregnancy being the best? They're right. (laughs) Because it's almost over. (laughs) I guess. Yeah. But like, there's so many things I miss, like being able to breathe normally. Sleeping. Sleeping comfortably. This is way too much information. And I'm sorry. Yeah, we apologize immediately. Uh, Having a normal bowel movement. Yes. You know, something that we um, take for un- granted. Yes. Until something goes wrong in that area. Yeah. Absolutely. So uh, I look forward to Xanax. <laughs> um, all the things. All the things. A big glass of wine. Yeah. Everything. <laughs> so how are you? I'm really good, actually. Good. Surprisingly well for how strange the world is these mm-hmm. days. <laughs> Yeah, I was just listening to our... uh, So you've been on the podcast twice, and it was like four years ago when your book came out the last time. Yeah, it was 2015 when my book came out, and yeah, I was doing a round of stuff, and that's when I I met you, yeah, and great convo. You were talking about uh, feeling really dark and and you had marion williamson on your on your (laughs) radio show podcast on my podcast waking from the american dream that's right and she kind of coached you through that and i was thinking if you were feeling because you were talking about your dad um sort of towards the end of his life had this was your term bemused detachment sort of species bemused detachment was his term yes right Uh and he just had this kind of bleak out he was able to distance himself from the human species enough that he he could just watch it like the freak show right i mean that was his thing was you know when you're born you get a ticket to the freak show when you're born in america you get a front row seat right so for him that was his whole stance and it's gotten so much crazier since then my God. And when, P- you know, of course, the last three years, everyone comes to me and says, what would he say? What would he think? And I, and I just do the freak show line because I'm like, <laughs> he said it all already pretty yeah. much. And it did get darker, way darker. I know. <laughs> Is that a burden to have people asking you to speak for him? Yes, huge, huge yeah. burden. It's an impossibility, right? It'd be someone saying, hey, Allison, could you speak for your father or mother or, you know, dead relative or anyone else? I mean, how do we speak for anyone else? Right. And, and it's like, I mean, I think people assume I have some sort of in on his perspective, a deeper one, which I may, I mean, obviously, I was closer to him than most people on the planet. But what came out of his comedic genius brain um, 
always surprised and shocked me. So it's not like I was sitting around going, oh, I know what's coming next out of him. Um, He was always, always pushing some new edge or talking about something that I'd never, ever wrapped my own brain around. So the reason he was George Carlin was he was George Carlin. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I am not that person. Kelly Carlin. I am a separate human, believe it or not. you're enough. I thank you, (laughs) Allison. Oh, my God. So I'm very fascinated by your trajectory. Um, And I always over-identify, is my term, with you when we talk. Because while my dad was not uh, a household name like George Carlin, there's still a lot of, we have a lot of similar family dynamics in terms of the enmeshment, the lack of boundaries, the, a lot of psychological terms coming out right now, the yeah. triangulation. Yep. Um, Codependence. Yeah. Yep. The, the, you know, caring too much about your parents' opinion mm-hmm. way past the age that that is appropriate. Right. Like 14. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. No, I mean, my dad sent me, I'm 43. My mm-hmm. dad sent me an email yesterday and well, I'll just say what it is about. I um I don't usually get into political back and forths on Twitter, but ever since Trump's, you know, Oval Office ad- like fear-mongering <laughs> yes. Oval Office address, I I did do some tweeting. Uh-huh. And then so I did a little bit of tweeting and then I responded to a few people who just, I just couldn't not. You could, uh, I could not. Uh, and so my dad wrote, so my dad is very paranoid, well, overprotective mm-hmm. slash paranoid, anxious. Right. And he sent me, and, and always in general airs on the side of, he's also a retired doctor, so worst case scenarios, um, you know, and like, why ever take a risk if you don't have to? Right, right. So he wrote to me and he's like, you're not, there was wisdom in what he said, like, you're never going to change these people's minds. And I think engaging them uh, could make them want to hurt you. Hmm. Um, And, you know, blah, 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 blah. Like, I understand, but it's, and the thing is like, I already was thinking like, why am I doing this? Yeah. But I do, I do, I 100% disagree with the idea that I'm like making myself a target. I feel like everyone, I'm not taking on like Mike Cernovich or something. This is, this is (laughs) someone I don't know with. And his army. Right. With like 35 followers, you know? Um, so I agree that like, what's the point? But I disagree with the idea that like, you have to be, you have to silence yourself or else you're putting yourself in danger. Right. Because that in the end could get us all in trouble. Right. At some point we all have to speak up. Yes. But at that, what moment is that is always the big decision. That yeah. being said, yeah. I deleted the tweet. Ah. And then I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> I'm a 43 year old woman whose father just emailed her. She does, and I disagreed, but I still deleted the tweet. Like, what am I doing? (sighs) So anyway, all of that is to say, I identify very strongly with with everything that you talk about. Um, And now, and also, I've always had an interest in psychology Mm. as well. And I've always wondered, like, is 
should I have gone that direction? Um, and now you are actually sort of putting that into practice. Can you talk about what you're doing now? Yeah. So just to talk a little bit about the foundation of what I'm doing is uh, way back in 2001, I went and got my master's in Jungian psychology and graduated in 2004. And knew I didn't really want to be a therapist sitting in rooms with depressed people worried that when I go on vacation, they will not do well. Um, I, I never went to get um, to to become a therapist. I went to a really cool place called Pacifica Graduate Institute. That's, that's in Southern California, right? It is. It's in Santa Barbara. And they have a bunch of different tracks, one of which is counseling psychology, which is what I did. They have clinical psychology, but they also have mythology and depth psychology. And depth psychology is just the psychology of the unconscious. Freud created it. Jung was a student of his. Jung went on his own, did his own direction. So any kind of psychology that works with imagination and the unconscious and mythology and all the Joseph Campbell stuff. Uh, in fact, Pacifica has Joseph Campbell's archives on their oh, wow. campus. That's part of the reason I went there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so all that kind of juicy, yummy stuff around story and art and imagery and dreams and all that stuff. And I went and studied that because I wanted to learn about deeply about the human journey. I'm fascinated by what makes us tick, how developmentally things change us, because I was still in the middle of working through my family of origin Mm. shit. You know, my mom had died a few years before that. And it was a huge awakening for me around um, a knowing that it was time for me to speak my voice out into the world. And I knew I'd done a lot of delayed, you know, I was in my early 40s and still not feeling very much like an adult. Adulting was kind of a foreign thing Mm -hmm. to me. And so I'm just super curious about what does it take to survive all that stuff and then transform it so that we can actually end up functioning, fulfilled, fully empowered humans. You know, I, I, I'm always been fascinated with that. And so I went, got my degree, then went into life coaching. I thought, well, at least I can be a life coach. And then my dad died in 2008. And, uh, you know, Alice in Wonderland rabbit hole experience. <laughs> like my whole life went upside down. I was, I'm an only child. So I was now his voice and face. I chose to be his voice and face in public. I wanted his legacy to be really honored and respected and carrying on. And that was amazing and great and still is amazing and great. Um, But after about five years of that or six years of that, um, and once I'd done my solo show, A Carlin Home Companion, and then got my book deal and had my book, that arc of, of me working through, A, honoring my dad's legacy, but then really working through a big personal childhood wound, which was being invisible. Mm. And not having my own voice being seen and heard and my own story being told about my family. You were kind of from a very young age put in the role of being the caretaker of your parents because they both had substance abuse issues. Yeah, absolutely. My, my dad was on the road being, you know, a working comic. And my mom was alcoholic pretty early in my life. I mean, by age four, I have a memory of her being drunk, falling into a suitcase. Mm-hmm. And um, when she was sober, she was an amazing human being. When she was drunk, not so much. <laughs> <laughs> Nazi Brenda, that's what you guys called her. Yeah, Nazi Brenda. Dad and I would get together. She would get very uh, rigid. And uh, so, yeah, I was enmeshed very early and um, and had to go to school and out in the world and pretend that there wasn't the amount of chaos going on inside of my house. You know, for everyone 
who's read my book who could relate to that, I've, I always get, um, I always feel so honored that I can be a voice for that kind of childhood because so many of us grew up in chaos. And uh, so, yeah, so I, you know, I would go to school and go, and they'd say, how are you? And I'd be, oh, fine, everything's fine. And, and I learned to be fine and nothing was ever fine. Mm. And that continued on in my adult years. So, you know, getting a chance to finally say, hey, I wasn't fine and it wasn't okay. And yet we still loved each other and we survived it. And we were three people who worked through it and evolved and transformed. And that's what I wanted my story to be about was a real survivor story. Did you feel guilty or disloyal saying that? You know, I, at the beginning, I, I had to work through that when I started working on my solo show with Paul Provenza, who directed it and helped me develop it. I had to work through that fear of turning away some of his fans because mm. they would think like, oh, you're taking him off the pedestal and you're making him human to me. And I wanted to say to them, yes, and you'll be a better human for it because we shouldn't put people on pedestals. Right. <laughs> like it's not a healthy thing to do. Uh, you know, celebrity culture really fucks us all mm -hmm. up. And especially the celebrity um, and the people around them. So I did, I had to work through some of that and even work through the internalized voice of my father, who was very private. You know, he didn't go on stage and do what Richard Pryor did or Louis C.K. or whoever goes out there and just kind of spills their personal shadow shit all over the stage. My dad never did that. He was kind of the one who was the perfectionist on stage mm -hmm. and, you know, had these perfect perfect little things. So I had to work through and renegotiate inside myself with my dad. Like, what would he really want for me? And he would really want me to speak my truth with love mm -hmm. and know that it's okay that he comes off looking like a human who didn't know what he was doing all the time, you know, that he would have he he owned that personally, for sure. So I did have to work through that. And then in 2016, I'd it was it'd been about eight years and I my book came out in 2015. And I just knew like once the book came out, I needed to be done. I needed to be done being George Carlin's daughter out on social media out in the world um, to pick and choose my spots for that. And I ended up doing two things that year, donating his archives to the National Comedy Center, which if you don't know about it, listeners uh, go online um, to Comedy Center comedycenter.org. It's in Jamestown, New York, Southern Tier of New York. It's a $50 million project. It's incredible. I'm on the board of advisors. I donated my dad's archives. We just opened last summer of 2018. It's fucking spectacular is all I have to say. <laughs> uh, everyone who walks through it uh, is blown away by it. Last summer, we had Lily Tomlin come out and perform at the Lucy Fest, which is it's Lucille Ball's hometown. Mm -hmm. This was Lucille Ball's vision was to have a national comedy center that really honored the art of comedy. And that's what they've done. It's it's the Cooperstown of, of comedy. Uh, so I, I donated my dad's archives to that place knowing who they were, knowing it was legit, knowing it was going to be the real deal, which helped me let go of, first of all, 12 trunks of material <laughs> in my personal garage that I was always freaked out about that there'd be a fire or right. something like, holy shit, my dad took all this time to save all this stuff. Um, 
Were you had you like insured it to the hilt? I had insured it, um, but you know it's kind of like priceless stuff. Like right, you know it's irreplaceable, no matter what. Uh, yeah, so the money would have come, but not you know the objects were really what it was all right. about. Was it notebooks and things? like it that? It was. Um, it was one file of some handwritten notes, but it was really a ton of memorabilia and a ton of like awards mm-hmm. and um fan letters from the 70s and tons of um you know newspaper clippings like back when they actually used to clip newspapers you had a news clipping service yeah that my dad would get and every week they'd get a pile of stuff so he just he saved everything he saved um there's there's a uh and and by the way the national comedy center created a corner for my dad's stuff it's called george carlin's stuff where (laughs) you can digitally go through these archives like every piece of paper and i mean i remember going through it early on and opening up a um uh, my mom had made a a scrapbook early i I was barely one years old it was like 63 64 and it was in an envelope it said first tonight show and I opened it up and it was my dad's set list from the very first time oh, wow. he was on The Tonight Show with Jack Parr. Wow. And on the back then he wrote some notes about how it went. <laughs> what did he say? Um, it was like pretty good, messed up on the something or other, gonna do more with this or something <laughs> like that. It was like total like real yeah. just like these are notes that I need to like right. figure this out. Uh, so I knew he just had a treasure. So I, I donated that. And then in the summer of 2016, I decided to for the whole summer, get off of social media. I was done. I like eliminated myself from all the George Carlin fan groups on Facebook and all that stuff. And I just pulled away. And it was also the campaign Mm -hmm. uh, summer and it was getting horrific out there. I mean, now we know why, because there were the Russian bots, like, you know, stoking the fire of all this stuff. And I just, I needed to find some, some way to, you know, just to unplug from all of that. And so when I came back in the fall of 2016, I declared to the world, like through my little pin tweets and my little Facebook cover picture and everything. Um, I am no longer talking about my dad, you know, like I, I, I don't want to answer questions. I'm not interested. Um, please do not link to me. Do not CC me. Do not retweet anything of his. Um, because I, I didn't even realize what I got out of that summer was that when your father dies, no matter who your father is, if someone were to about anywhere from five to 15 times a day, call you up or put a picture of him in front of your eyes, it's really traumatizing. Mm. It's painful. And I had been bucking it up and pretending like it was all okay and even welcoming it in fear that if I didn't, I would disappoint the world. Right, like you were taking care of them. I was. So, you know, once again, the codependent stuff (laughs) shows up. And it was terrifying, absolutely terrifying for me to take this stand with the world. And of course, when we, whenever we take stands like this, we always think it's going to be some horrific, like the walls are going to cave in. Totally. And the earth's going to open up. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'd say 99.9% of the people were like, oh my God, of course, I totally get it. You've been so generous and kind anyway. And then like I'd get a couple of people who were assholes. Yeah. <laughs> but it really worked out well. And then I knew like, okay, now I can find 
MySpace. I imagine it would be scary, too, because that had been such a huge part of your identity for so long. Mm-hmm. I had, and I knew I was making this choice when I went to start my solo show, like in 2011, 2012. Um, yeah, 2011 is when I really started it. Um, that I I knew I was going to be walking through the fire. Like I'm choosing to be my dad's daughter in public. And I know that I will get burned. It's not going to be simple and clean and easy. And yet there were a couple of things with it, one of which is I really, really wanted to get my story out there. I, I had been sitting on my story for about 15 years. So I knew I wanted to do that for sure. Um, but I think also on some deep, archaic childhood wounding level, I wanted some of the spotlight. Mm. I wanted to feel that, you know, I wanted to like, say, let let's see what it feels like mm. to be in his light, finally. And, um, and, and yet I knew that I would have to renegotiate some at, in future time, right? Like I knew that was coming, you know, how did it feel? Um, to be in the spotlight, it felt great and hard at the same time. It felt great because I I was proving to myself that I could walk and talk in public, um, which was something I had never really tried before my dad died. I was very much a quiet, invisible life. And we didn't even have social media before mm-hmm. my dad died. And between social media and podcasting, I'd started to find my voice anyway. So to be able to, I found that I could really that I did have the gift of the gab that I could walk into any situation, whether it be recording or live, a live situation, and talk ex- extemporaneously and have opinions about the world and all of that. Um, and then being on actual stage in a theater with hundreds of eyeballs on me, um, that took about four years for me to really get used to. It's really a weird thing. <laughs> I I don't have it in me. I don't need it. Mm-hmm. You know, I talk to stand-ups who need it. Yeah. Like they need it seven times a week kind of a thing. My dad needed it and he talked about that. Um, I'm a real empathic, sensitive person. So it's very intense for me energetically mm-hmm. to have lots of eyeballs on me. And the first three years I did my solo show, I don't think I was really even in my body. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was just I get it. doing the moves and yeah. doing the thing and doing. And then I got a chance in early 2015 to do my show at the Falcon Theater, which is now the Gary Marshall Theater here. Oh, yeah. Right in Burbank. up the street from mm-hmm. this area that we're in. Um, and I had three weeks rehearsal and I had I did a five week run. And during that time, I got to learn to live and breathe on stage as a human being. And um, it was hard and tough. Um, but um, I, I loved it. I, lo- I loved that I proved to myself that a, I can do a 90 minute show, I can memorize that material, I can make people laugh and cry. I mean, there's nothing, there really is nothing like 
feeling like a god on a stage, <laughs> being able to manipulate people's emotions. Right. I mean, I get it. Mm-hmm. I fucking get it. <laughs> uh, it's powerful. Um, but in order to do it, for me personally, there's such a high price to pay in my energy body for that intensity of giving out and you're because you're you're in a vortex of energy with the audience if you're really present and alive mm-hmm. and it's a huge high and for me it's like and this all sounds very woo woo or weird or whatever but it really felt like at times my life force was kind of threatened by it mm-hmm. you know like the whole i'm half introvert half extrovert and so the introvert part of me would be like fucking freaked <laughs> out by it all. Yeah. Um, so, um, so, but it, but it's, it's like overstimulating. It is overstimulating. And yet I'm really glad I did it. And I know at some point in the future, I will definitely be back on stage again and want to write and talk about this wild fucking ride I just went on the last 10 years by being in the spotlight and and working through my dad's stuff in public on stage with an audience. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I mean, because that's really what I did. I was like, hey, I'm working my daddy shit out. (laughs) And you're all watching right now. (laughs) And I'm entertaining you at the same time. Um, And but, but when I when I finished the Falcon, and then and so when I was done and came back from social media and told the world that I was done being George Carlin's daughter. Really the last, you know, it was like a year and a half then it was like, I, I don't know who I am. I don't know what I'm going to do next. Mm -hmm. I I wanted to like, you know, and plus I lost one of my dearest, dearest friends who was Gary Shandling, who Mm -hmm. had from day one after my dad died, been one of, he called me up and we cried on the phone together. I'd never met the man before. And we cried on the phone together right after my dad died. And he became kind of part, Zen master therapist, best friend for me. And so he died also during that time. And so it was like, I really felt like, oh, shit, I'm now I really have to figure out who I am for myself. Right. And I just wanted to call some up and say, hi, wanted to know, um, when you've like fulfilled a 15 year dream, <laughs> and had like a solo show and a, a memoir come out, um, and then you're done. Uh, what do you do next? <laughs> like, is there a book for that? Can someone just right. <laughs> steer me in a direction or something? Because uh, I've just been chasing. Mm-hmm. I, I, mm-hmm. You know, most of my life I was in confusion. And then for a good 15 years, I was in like this chasing, like this story that I had was always on my shoulder going, mm-hmm. tell me, tell me, tell me to the world, tell me to the world. And then that happened. And then it was like, I'm kind of out of like, what's like, I don't have to be unconfused. Uh, I have to get out of that. I don't have to chase my dream. Um, uh, yeah, um, I don't know. <laughs> Did you, was it a feeling of contentment plus not knowing what direction to go? Mm-hmm. Huge contentment, huge sense of accomplishment. Uh, and I think also I hadn't really let myself drink that in yet mm-hmm. because I was in such going do what's next yes expansion mode that i'd never really paused to let myself go all right what if i start to embrace and integrate the reality of what the hell i just did Mm -hmm. and made happen and all of the um 
personal and professional leaps I had made and survived and learned from and had some semblance of success with, you know, and, and I think we always want to like speed up these transition parts of our lives. Yes. I think because the uncertainty is so daunting. Exactly. It's, you know, it's like, there's no to do list, except for like, integrate, (laughs) whatever the hell that (laughs) means. And um, yeah, we, we definitely don't, it's like, oh, I should just get through this in six weeks. Okay, (laughs) three months tops. And you know, and then here I go, you know, and it's, and so what I started to do is I started to jump in immediately in 2017. I'm like, I'm just going to write a second book. I'm going to be a person who writes a book Mm. every few years, like my dear friend, Annabelle Gerwich, (laughs) who's like always pumping out these fantastic essay books. And I'm just gonna, I'm gonna be like that. I'm gonna be someone who just cranks it out, you know, and, and I started to work on something around the topic, um, untangling daughterhood. Mm because that's really what I saw I had done. I wanted to talk to women about how do we do that? How do we untangle ourselves from our fathers sending us emails (laughs) (laughs) at age 43 and still jumping through the hoop for him? Right. You know, how do we really unpack this stuff? And I feel like a dog being given a command. Yes, it's very in, Pavlovian. Right, that's, yeah, they, you understood what I meant. Like, yes. not in terms of he's treating me like a dog, but yeah. just like, it's like, before I have a chance to decide whether I <laughs> yes. want to react, I react. Yes, exactly. It's trained. We are, we, and, and it is, it is that it's very deep in our hardwiring, completely. It's un- completely unconscious, because like you said, before you're even aware, like I remember I used to go to breakfast with my dad, and he would like say something, and I would like not know how to react. And then, and this is when I knew I was getting healthier, because it would be like two days later sometimes, and I would get pissed. Mm-hmm. And I'd be like, well, fuck him. <laughs> and then like started, that started to be like one day, and then it would be like starting getting like two hours later. Yes. I'm like, oh, I'm getting better. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I've had those kind of things where like in therapy, I'll be like, but the thing is, right, right away, I realized, yes, you know, yes, yeah. and you're like, in the moment, I felt the feeling <laughs> right. and had the thought and was able to actually say the sentence. Mm-hmm. It's such a victory when that <laughs> happens. Um, do you think all daughters go through this? I think all humans do. Okay. I think we're, okay, we're socialized by our parents and our culture. Those are the two big places we get messages. So, um, and we're either in a couple of different relationships with them. We're either in the kind of the way you and I are, which is watching for every cue and clue to tell us what to do mm-hmm. in order to make to sure the that girl. they're right. The good girl syndrome, or we're in total rejection of them, which is the bad girl syndrome, mm-hmm. but you're still in relationship right. with them. Right. You're still not being yourself. Right. Because you're only in reaction. Um, and then there's just, you know, the trying to just kind of numb and disconnect yourself completely from it all and kind of crashing between good girl and bad girl, mm-hmm. which I think all of us kind of do. Um, and I think it's, but the un- the underlying thing is, how do we start to unpack and give ourselves a chance to figure out what are those messages we are unconsciously reacting to like why am i just ringing when he rings the bell i i I start to (laughs) drool exactly and really you know 
getting in there and looking at these contracts, these unconscious contracts we made at age two, three, four, five, <laughs> six, mm-hmm. which is usually around when, and, and see like, well, what, what decisions did we make? And, and our worldview at two, three, four, five, six is very, very immature, immature yeah. and, <laughs> and not real at all. So we're basing it on a view of the world that's not realistic with and we're basing it and we're doing a good job of it. And it's like necessary we did it because we did it to survive, which is, hey, yay, we're here. You're mm-hmm. 43. I'm 55. We fucking made it. We did it. Yep. Um, so and it's just it's just part of the process. Our parents aren't wrong for it. We're mm-hmm. not wrong for it. It's just part of it all. So that unpacking of that is really important. And then once you start to unpack it and start to hear like, oh, those are some of the contracts I made. And those are the scripts I tell myself. And that's yeah, the like I'm line. realizing I think the one the one that I signed <laughs> was I won't do anything that will make you worry about my physical safety. Perfect. It's exactly what it is. Yeah. 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 And, and, and that's really commendable because who wants to put our parents through that? Mm -hmm. You know, but, but it becomes limiting when it's preventing me from doing things which are important for my growth or just like things that like I still to this day probably would never get on the back of a motorcycle (laughs) or. Even horseback riding, which I used to horseback ride and I got thrown and I broke some ribs. Uh huh. Um, and, you know, then when Christopher Reeve, you know, had his yes. accident. It's like, oh, that's off the, yeah, that's definitely off the I, list. Right. And so still, like, I kind of miss horseback riding, but it's like, I don't think I could do that to my parents. And then I go, what? I'm an, ad- I'm an adult now with my own kid yeah. and another one on the way. Like, what am I doing? Yeah. And that it- I'm, that I'm, still obeying them they're unspoken and it, rules it's it's such a great thing because in that moment also what we're doing is we're saying that we're we don't want our parents to have to suffer mm-hmm. the anxiety they're going to feel right and so some part of us feels and this is where i had to go in my own life that we're actually powerful enough to make sure our parents don't suffer anxiety. And oh, so, I don't even think some part of me feels that. I think all of me feels right. that. Right. <laughs> so it's a power thing. And it's a... Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, a, a, it's a lack of seeing yourself clearly. Yeah. It's a wrong-headed power move. It's... it's mm, that's so interesting. Yeah. It's, it's a bit of a, a superiority power thing where we... Where because we were kids and we don't have any power when we're kids. Right. So we look for places to have power and, and and not like power in like a bad, like power over or anything, Mm. but it's just, it's an unconscious relationship with our own power. That's so interesting. Yeah. 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 I hadn't even thought about that. Like whether he feels anxiety or not about my actions, he's still going to feel anxiety about all the other things in life that cause him to feel anxiety. Exactly. And he's a doctor. He's been a doctor. He's been a grown up. He's a really wise healer man if he's going to feel some anxiety about you, that's his business. Yeah. You know, and it is, it's, it's really, so that's the untangling part is like really figuring out what's my business and what's their business. Mm-hmm. And, and that get, is thorny. Yes, it is. And, and yet it's really where the leaps and bounds get to be made because then we really get to see, well, well, then we learn, first of all, how to walk through that thorniness Mm -hmm. and realize that, okay, I'm going to have some butterflies 
And it's going to be a little scary for me to let dad feel this anxiety. Um, and, and yet, we'll be okay. You know, what we're all going to be okay in the end. And once you like start to do a couple of those things, you see, the catastrophe doesn't happen. Right. And that dad's okay. He hasn't had an ulcer and he's not, <laughs> <laughs> right. He's not having to take Xanax or, you know, whatever it is. Um, and parents' jobs are to worry about their kids mm-hmm. until the day they die. <laughs> That's kind of their jobs. Right. So I, I'm fascinated by all this untangling stuff and all of, and I wanted to write from my own perspective about all this stuff I had to untangle with my dad to do my show and write the book and everything. And then I thought, oh, and I'll write a book and it'll be for women everywhere. And then, and I got a new lit agent (laughs) and I was getting all this energy about it. And then it just, I kept working on it. And you know, when you're working on something and some little voice inside of you is going, no, Mm -hmm. this isn't working. There's something wrong here. Uh, you, you know that we, we don't know what it is, but it's not working and you're just gonna, and I kept having this niggling little thing. And then, I had an epiphany in one day, which was two epiphanies, one of which is, if I write a book called Untangling Daughterhood, the word daughter is in the title, and I'm still going to be a daughter, and I don't want to be a daughter, Mm -hmm. because that's the whole point of Untangling Daughterhood, (laughs) is to actually be a grown-up woman. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And the next one was, is I went to my friend's house, who's like this incredible screenwriter, story structure guy. And I told him my whole like outline for the book and everything. And we were like talking about act three acts mm-hmm. of screenplays and, you know, all the Joseph Campbell hero's journey stuff and everything like that. And he looks at me and he goes, Kelly, I have some really bad news for you. <laughs> I'm like, oh no. What? And he's like, um, I know you think you have the ending of your book because the ending of my book was me at Gary Shandling's memorial where like the whole message of the memorial was it's not about the entertainment business. It's about love Mm -hmm. and how you treat your, you know, how you bring love out into the world. And I thought, and even when I was sitting in the memorial, I said to Bob, my husband, I've got the ending to my book. (laughs) (laughs) Gary just gave me the ending to my book. (laughs) Gary's going to be so happy. He gave me the ending of my book. (laughs) So that was the ending. And so my friend looks at my friend, Matt, the screenwriter looks at me and he goes, um, the memorial uh, scene. That's the ending of the second act. Oh God. Uh, you haven't lived your third act yet. Oh, geez. Oh, fuck. <laughs> so back to the drawing board. Oh, fuck. <laughs> and I'm like, what? And then I looked at him and I went, oh, you're so right. I mean, that's what the real niggling thing inside of me was, is I knew. You weren't ready yet. I wasn't ready yet yeah. to tell this story and to be in it. And I needed to go be separate, Kelly, and go do some of the work in the world that I was doing before my dad died, but now integrating it with everything I've learned in the last 10 years and my ability to be out in public and be on a podcast like this and talk mm. to you and, and all of that. And, um, and that's when I just, uh, that's when I'm like, I started teaching online is what I started doing. I started teaching meditation mm-hmm. online. I teach Sundays online. People can come meditate with me anytime they want. And, uh, and then I launched this woman on the verge thing. Um, last September, but I was building it all, all writing about it and building it. And it's really my untangling daughterhood stuff in active form with me over a year long program Mm -hmm. uh, with women who go through it and we get to untangle their daughterhood. So is it online? It is online. Yeah, I create content, 
put it online. We have a community call. And then um, and then people can also like upgrade if they want to do small group coaching with me. We have pod calls. And then if people want to also do one-on-one coaching with me, we can upgrade to that level. But yeah, it's all online. And, um, and, I, and I really... Um, I talk to the women who are going to enroll. It's not like it's an open enrollment online for women on the verge. I want to make sure that what I'm doing really, really fits what they need. Um, because for me, if there's a sweet spot there, then I'm like in full confidence that I'm going to help these women mm-hmm. really help them over a year transform. And um, and I've gathered everything from all of my Jungian psychology stuff that I studied. Um, I studied a bunch of mother daughter daughter stuff during that time, my Buddhist stuff, um, all of, you know, these great teachers I've worked with for the last 20 years. And, um, and then this experience I've had of like, looking in the mirror and walking through the fire with my dad stuff. And um, I feel like in creating the content for this program, I am doing it's the same luscious creative space as when I was developing my show and writing my book. Like it feels like I'm in touch with deep source, creative sourcing for Mm -hmm. it. And so it's deeply fulfilling for me personally. And then to be in relationship with these women and watch them have these ahas and these moments and take this material and unpack themselves and integrate it. Um, one of my biggest joys is watching other people have ahas. So it's like so fulfilling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Are most of the women, um, have most of them had like been working on themselves to some degree? And Yeah, I would say they're, they're pretty conscious. Most of them. Yeah, absolutely. Some of them have had some therapy or not, but just are into, you know, self-improvement. Um, and it's really interesting, the range I have, the women I work with, I work with women in transition, who want something wider and deeper in the next phase of their life. So I have like a 30 year old, I have some 40 somethings, I have a lot of 50 somethings. And then I have some women in their mid 60s and late 60s also, who are really looking at like the last 20, 25, 30 years of, I mean, like, who knows how, right? Right. So it's kind of fascinating. So it's like, whatever. And that's why I call it women on the verge. It's like, whatever you feel like you're on the verge of doing this deep unpacking and untangling is going to help you get an enormous amount of clarity and more energy and alignment into your true self, you know, and you and a feelings of like authority and power and all of that, too. And so it's a real wide range of women. I have artists, I have I have a woman who's empty nester, total traditional, been a housewife. Um I have um some uh, the young people I have or people who are just starting, you know, mm-hmm. wanting to pursue their creative careers or their careers. I have people in the middle of the country who feel like they're kind of alone in their communities and they don't you know they don't get to talk about this kind of stuff with most people around them and you know they're in indiana or kansas and um so i just such a wide range right now it's really really cool um are there moments where you feel like you are seeing what someone's going through and perhaps could like lead them to an epiphany or tell them what the epiphany should be and stuff, but you want them to get there on 
their own? And how do you handle that? Yeah, it's a great, great question for anyone who does therapy or coaching or any kind of guiding or teaching. There's a real balance between giving them the tools and educating them about the framework of what we're doing, and then really trusting that their psyche understands what it needs to do. And um, one of the things when I was trained as a life coach, uh, one of the kind of the phrases they taught us is to hold our clients creative, resourceful and whole, that I know inside of every one of us, there is a, a whole person already who's fully realized and that we just need to get access to them. Mm. We need to let them have a voice. And that part of this work is um, clearing the space enough for that aspect of ourselves that really do know what we want, that really do know how to take risks and how to um, ask for what we want and go for what we want and feel safe in our bodies and all that kind of stuff. And some and people who've had deep trauma early on, you know, and that's why I really kind of vet who comes into my program. I can tell within 10 minutes if this is a person who needs therapy and has got some deep trauma work that needs to be done first, or if it's someone who's pretty got a healthy ego strength mm-hmm. and, you know, is high functioning and is ready to unpack the onion for themselves a little bit. Um, and so it is a dance with, with them um, because the, um, f- I have a fixer inside of me. That was something <laughs> I learned in my childhood. So I have to keep an eye on my fixer and my rescuer who wants to just make sure that everyone's feeling good and happy and we're all got smiles and, <laughs> oh, and, and you do love me for what I'm doing, right? <laughs> it's, it's called, you know, you have to really um, keep an eye on those parts of yourself and let them be in the muck a little bit and let them struggle and let them because that's where the resilience and the real sense of power and strength comes from. And and that's also why I have like the small group coaching and the one on one stuff and and everyone who, who signs up gets some one on one time with me. Because there are then times where we it's like, okay, let's spend an hour together on the phone and let's dig down into the real muck of this and I will hold the space for you and I do know where to go and where we need to go talk to. So let's go there. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's a it's letting my deep wise intuition lead me while not taking away their sense of efficacy and usefulness. Right. Do you think you will ever practice like will you ever want to be a clinician no, in a like one zero. Really? Zero. Interesting. No, I always want to be someone who can then go on Twitter and use the word fuck <laughs> and go on oh, a, yeah. and go on a stage and, and be a Carlin, you mm-hmm. know, in whatever form I am, you know. Um, no, have no desire to be a, a clinical psychologist. I love that I can do this from my home, that I can be on the phone or Zoom. We do a lot of Zoom work together. Um, and then I can go off and do my stuff. Um, I'm very eclectic. I can't do just one thing. I take my hat off to these clinicians who see 10 clients a day. I don't know how they do it. Mm-hmm. I don't, like I said, I'm sensitive and too empathic. I cannot do that. And I'm half extrovert. I have to know I can go out in the world and be goofy and silly mm-hmm. and an entertainer at times. Yeah. So if people want more information, they should go to women on the verge coaching. Yeah, that'll get you directly to that to that place. And they'll there's a little description and there's a button then and then you can fill out a little questionnaire and I can get an idea of what you're up to and what you're looking to do. 
Um, and then if people want to um, do my meditation or some other things that I offer, I have a Patreon page where I support my podcast and support my, it's called Sunday Unplug is my my Sunday meditation mm-hmm. thing, which I love. It's a, like a really casual group of people. We I'm on Zoom. We, d- we do an actual 20 minute sitting meditation together, which I always laugh because if people come in late, it's just me like with my eyes closed, <laughs> <laughs> breathing. It's really boring. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, you can go to my Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash Kelly Carlin. Great. Uh, but yeah. Um, yeah. And I'm just, it's what's so interesting is before my dad died and I was doing this work, I loved it, but I felt like I hadn't done my other work first. And now that I've done the show and the book, it's like, I feel seen and heard enough in the world that I can really honor this work and really dive into it deeply. And know that, you know what, in a year or two or three, I probably will do some other kind of stage work again, but who knows what it is. I don't know. Well, it's good. It will be birthed from all of this for sure. (laughs) Well, let's take some questions that listeners sent in. Yes. When we ask, they send them in. They're wondering how you have been. So thanks so much for answering these questions from our fans. All right. Um, so I also have a Patreon, patreon.com slash Allison Rosen, all sorts of fun bonus stuff behind the scenes, live stream, bonus episodes. Um, and you can, you can ask your question of my guest and jump ahead of the line. Ha! Um, Get in front, people. That's right. <laughs> okay. Alyssa Van Dyke wants to know, what self-care do you gift yourself to stay sane? Oh, such a great question. Uh, unplugging from news and social media and screens and just musing. I do a lot of journal writing and um, I'm starting to do uh, dream tending work also. So I'm really honoring my dreams. So just time in the morning, morning routine is essential for self-care. Do not let the world enter your world for about an hour after you wake up. I have been talking about this on this podcast it's huge. about my desire to not look at Twitter in the morning, but like, especially because I'm not sleeping very well now, I look at Twitter multiple times in the middle of the night and yeah. like before I'm fully awake. And I don't, I know that that's not good, but it's just an addiction. Take it off your phone, Allison. Oh my God. Yeah. That's, do that's it, crazy talk. <laughs> do it for one Do it for one week and experiment. Just yeah. an experiment. You can put it on after seven days. But if you don't have it on your phone, that means you have to get out of bed, get on your computer and look at it. And it'll stop you. Yeah, it's the Pavlovian thing because, you know, we all do it. And right. they it's built, it's built for this. Yeah. You know, refresh, refresh, refresh. Oh, oh, more, more, more. Take it off your phone for a week. And I am now lazy enough that you wouldn't get out of bed i won't no, no. i won't go to my computer no. <laughs> so all right i'm gonna try that yeah Alyssa van dyke also wants to know what keeps you up at night what issues do you feel you haven't tackled in your own life mm, another great question um you know money used to be that thing uh because i'm 55 and it's like <gasps> and you know I, my dad didn't leave me millions of dollars my dad died uh millions of dollars in debt actually so uh ooh, good times did that get passed on to you uh, I didn't have to pay the debt, but it meant that uh, some of the things he left me had to get sold. And yeah, Ugh. yeah. So, uh, but luckily, I got all of his personal stuff. That, so that was lovely. Um, but um, 
so money is always an issue, I think, for everybody, unless you're like a millionaire, billionaire. And, um, and, you know, my mom died young at, uh, of cancer. My mom died, she was 57. And I'm 55. And so the health thing mm, is always there. Mm. What kind of cancer? Uh, she had liver cancer, but she'd had breast cancer in her forties, but her liver cancer was separate. It was from mm-hmm. hepatitis C. And, um, and so I go and get checked all the time and I'm, you know, I'm really good about all this stuff. I'm not great with my diet and exercise and stuff, but I go to the doctors a lot and get checked. Uh, so like, it's, you know, the, the big things, health and money, like everyone else, you know? Um, and, and then, you know, there's that, you know, our twitchy brain, which will wake up in the middle of the night and we'll be like, oh, I need to solve this problem mm. you know some obscure problem with like i need to email <laughs> i need to email richard in the morning You're like yes. why why am i thinking about that at 3 a.m really yeah well really really brain <laughs> that's what we're gonna do um so yeah that's that's what i've been dealing with lately all right Anne ban asks Firstly, I'm sorry for making this question partly about George when Kelly is such an amazing person in her own right. Please feel free to pass over this question if it's too sensitive (laughs) or embargoed. I have recently finished watching season two of Marvelous Mrs. Maisel Mm. and have been inspired by actor Luke Kirby's fictional portrayal of the real Lenny Bruce. I read an article in the Post that includes a quote from Kitty Bruce praising Luke's performance and thanking the show for introducing her father's comedy to a completely new generation. Kelly wrote a very emotional tweet about watching the show in December, hashtag hole in my heart, parentheses, love and hugs, Kelly. My question to Kelly is, which actor would you trust to capture the spirit of George or yourself in your own fictional portrayal? And might we get to see George snuck into season three of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel? <laughs> oh, what a beautiful question. And, and beautiful only because uh, she really holds the space for me because she did see that tweet. And uh as I was explaining in the tweet, I watched the first two episodes of the show and couldn't watch anymore because my mom and dad would have been in those coffee houses. And it just, I just miss them so much. Yeah. So it's just too hard for me personally to watch it. But um, I'm, uh, I don't know. I cannot imagine. It's going to have to be an unknown actor who does this. And if and when we do it, you know, are we doing the young George Carlin going from straight clean cut to the big change, which I think is really a big part of his story mm. and should be part of it. So we have to find someone who can do clean cut George to hippie counterculture George. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's like watching the guy who did Bohemian Rhapsody. It's like, it's like, oh, you see it once you're like, oh, I see how that but I don't know if I'd have whatever looked at him and thought I never we should have yeah. we should have get him to do right. that. There's like people who are really good at this stuff. So I don't know. I just hope that whoever does this story um, really respects the truth. That's the most important thing for me. Um, I've uh, had some encounters with some biopic stuff, and it's very difficult. And I've talked to others like um, Roseanne Cash about her dad's biopic and how she felt about it. She hated it. She did. Yeah. But and she publicly says that. But she... um, she said it wasn't written for me and made for me. Mm. It was mm-hmm. made for something else. She goes to me, you're not the audience, Kelly. Yeah. So I ha- So this is a hard thing for me, because, but I'm lucky I've told my story. If I hadn't told my story yet, I'd probably my head would explode if anything <laughs> right. happens with a biopic or th- something. And who knows? I mean, maybe George will show up in The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. That would be freaking awesome. Um, and I would love to know from people out there, like, who do you think would could do my dad? Mm-hmm. Like, that's really the question. I'm 
you know, Sam Rockwell? Uh, no, I don't know. Joseph Gordon-Levitt was kind of dangled around for a little while. Oh, yeah, he would be good. He's got a little rubbery face that he can mm-hmm. do also. He might he might be the right guy. Yeah. This is a, a uh, might be a silly question. Do they need your permission to do anything? Can someone go make a biopic? Yes. Like Dick Cheney, like the oh, Adam right. McKay just did that. Yeah. Right. So you don't need people who are in public's permission. Um, now, living in California, there's a different law with that. So it's a little dicier. But because I am the voice and face of my dad, people would be really stupid not <laughs> to get my approval because a director or actor who came to me with wanting my blessing would need to have some conversations with me. Right. Right. <laughs> because I am very um, territorial with this. It's my dad. It makes sense. Yeah. And lastly, we have a question that came in on Twitter. This is a number of questions. So I'm going to read them to you. And you can choose which one <laughs> okay, or ones to answer. This All right. is from J. Patrick Rollo. Yes, I know who this is. Why is Kelly so kind? Am I her most annoying Twitter fan- friend or favorite? What's up with airline snacks? Should I use a dry rub or brine my turkey, Coke or Pepsi? If I made a resolution to meditate more this year and 10 days in, I'm failing, does that mean I'm a failure? Okay, A, everyone fails at meditation, so he needs to show up at Sunday and plug. <laughs> Always brine the turkey. Uh, I'm a Diet Coke girl. I only try to limit it to once a week. I'm so sorry. Um... And uh, my eyes just got really wide. What do you just drink water? Otherwise, I try to drink water mm-hmm. or I do like the soda stream thing now in the house. Yeah. We just got one of those. We're all excited. <laughs> it's a big thing though for Christmas. Um, and I have to say Patrick is one of my favorite Twitter followers because once I was stuck in a really shitty hotel room and his uh, wife works for the hotel industry. And within 20 minutes, he had me upgraded to a suite. Oh, my God. And this is a tw- and I did barely knew him on Twitter. Amazing. Yeah. So uh, Patrick and and Patrick came last year to the opening of the National Comedy Center and got to hang with us and Lewis Black and myself and Alan Zweibel and we all hung out together. Lorraine Newman. It was an amazing time um, at Chautauqua and in Jamestown. And so Patrick's a, Patrick's a good favorite. And why am I so kind? I don't know. That's I'm just you know what? It's just good genetics. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, Kelly. It was great having you on. Allison, thank you so much. It was just, I always really love these conversations. Me too. I, f- I feel like I've untangled a little bit of my daughterhood. I, th- I think we did untangle <laughs> a little bit did. today. Yeah. Um, you guys, I have a book out, Tropical Attire and Courage and Other Phrases That Scare Me. If you go to my website, alisonrosen.com, there's info for that. And we have t-shirts and ringtones. And I have a new podcast with Greg Fitzsimmons called Childish. Check that out, childishpod.com. Follow me on Twitter at Allison Rosen, Instagram, Allison Rosen, Twitter, which shall be removed from my phone, maybe... <laughs> Um, we're, we're still negotiating. If you like what you're hearing, subscribe iTunes.com slash Allison Rosen and leave a review. Kelly, uh, tell, so women on the verge coaching.com is the website. Yeah, they Carlin go- home companion is the book. Tell them where else to find just you. Just go to kellycarlin.com. If you want to work with me, there's a tab that says work with Kelly. You'll find women on the verge. You'll find my Patreon. You'll find my book there. And my we- and and my podcast, Waking from the American Dream. I'm like Allison. I wear twenty five thousand hats. That's right. We have giant hat racks. <laughs> we do. <laughs> thank you again, listeners. Thank you for listening. I love you. Goodbye. Hey, do you know about the Allison Rosen show? 